Listening to the Northern Football Podcast with Ben Steiner, Peter Galindo, and Alexander Gongay-Ruzic. And welcome back into the Northern Football Podcast. It's episode 113. I'm Ben Steiner alongside Alex Gongay-Ruzic. And no regular Peter Galindo today. We've got a special guest performance analyst for the Canadian men's national team, Peter Galindo. Yes, indeed. That is actually the truth. That's not a joke. Um, I have been brought into the Canadian men's national team technical staff for this upcoming window against Curacao and Honduras. And so as a result, I'm going to be off the podcast for the next couple of weeks in journalism in general. The opportunity is temporary for now, but obviously we'll see what happens after the window is done. I mean, I'm very much excited for this. It's also a bit bittersweet because I have enjoyed covering the men's national team as a journalist. This is going to be the first window in probably seven years that I've done where I haven't covered the men's national team in some capacity. So on one hand, it's, you know, a bit disappointing, but on the other hand, it's it's for a pretty damn amazing opportunity, and I'm really looking forward to it. And, uh, yeah. And uh, please remember to rate, subscribe, review, and follow us on social media here at the Northern Football Podcast. And, Alex, you're not joining the Canadian men's national team or the Canadian women's national team. Lots to talk about those teams, but you'll be covering the, the upcoming window. Yeah, I'm around. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> y'all are still uh, sick to hear me i'll be i'll be around for a little while more so sorry not sorry yes if you guys want basically an exact carbon copy of my work if you happen to miss it i don't know why you would but just read agr he basically says what i say including off the cuff takes that we had no idea we both came up with at the same time so yeah you'll probably find out more about that later in the show and certainly a big week in canadian soccer and we say that basically every week on this show especially recently with ever since June in the debacle part one, as you guys so aptly dubbed it. Uh, But the debacle continued uh, this week, the Heritage Committee meeting with the Canadian Women's National Team addressing the Standing Committee on Canadian Heritage in Ottawa. Sophie Schmidt, Christine Sinclair, Janine Becky, and Quinn met with the Heritage Committee on Thursday as part of the committee's inquiry into Canada soccer businesses practices, among other issues in Canada soccer. Also coming into the conversation was Bob Rarda and the sexual assaults Mm -hmm. and safe sport around Canadian soccer. The players told the committee that the women's team had essentially been treated as an afterthought compared to the men's side. Sinclair also alleged that during a 2022 meeting, Nick Bontis referred back to what Sinclair had said and asked what was it Christine was bitching about and a lot of reaction from national team players as well as uh, around Canadian soccer about that. Hours before the meeting, Canada Soccer released a statement with some of the details of its proposed collective bargaining agreement to the national teams. And while that was some much-needed transparency from Canada Soccer, it was a bit of a preemptive strike that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And getting into our first question from wsoccer.ca at wsoccer.ca, did anything emerging from the House Committee catch you by surprise? What questions would you ask Earl Cocker, Nick Bontis, or Charmaine Crooks if you were one of the MPs? If I were one of the MPs, I think the only thing I'd really want to know, and maybe you can then dig into it a little further from there, is why aren't the financial reports a little more detailed? Why are some categories that other federations list, why aren't they there? Things of that nature. Because even if you look at the statement, and we're going to go into this later, they were still, from the looks of it anyways, cherry-picking numbers to kind of build their narrative. Even in that capacity they're maybe still not being fully transparent or at least as transparent as they could be 
but really nothing caught me by surprise from that first section of the meeting because even the Sinclair comment, I had actually caught in wind of it a couple of months ago. Someone leaked the info to me. I just couldn't report it. But I am surprised that she said it because I figured just with everything going on and all the points that they wanted to make, maybe she would have overlooked it or forgotten about it. But the fact that she did bring it up, that was very clearly the big takeaway of the day in a lot of ways. Like if she didn't say that, I don't know if there really would have been any other major takeaway. And there won't really be anything surprising until the CSA speaks to the committee anyway. And I do hope that they get Bontis, Montopoli, Montaliani, and others that Anthony Housefather mentioned to you guys last week as well, because that would really blow the doors off this thing. Yeah, I suppose otherwise, I mean, I guess questions what we're probably going to hear a lot about is uh, the CSB deal, um, what's going on with that. That seemed to be a big theme from this. I think another one would be curious to see what has gone on with their plans for a women's league. I think it would be very interesting to hear what they planned. Like, if was there always a plan for there to be a women's league included after the men's league? And just, like, I feel like it would be good to hear some more questioning on that. Maybe I think the, the Bob Berarda situation, maybe, you know, a bit more on, uh, I mean, I guess less so the, or, you know, Earl Cochran, Nick Bontis, more like Victor Montagliani. Should he come on and what happened there? With, with, with that situation, how, you know, Mont- yeah, how Berardo was still allowed to, to coach. I think some of those more questions, because I think what we're going to see a lot of is what's going on now, the, the, the deal, equal pay, um, equity, you know, the CSB deal. But I do think while they're there, it'd be interesting, especially get Victor Montagliani on, because, uh, I mean, Anthony Housefather alluded it to last week on the podcast. Yeah, especially ask about that scandal mm-hmm. and, and as well as a, a lack of a women's league. Because that feels like the big kind of underlying problem here that isn't being mentioned uh, enough as in it's mostly been fronted as, okay, money, financials. But in reality, I think a lack, you know, the lack of a women's league is compounding a lot of the, the problems and rightfully so. Yeah, I was a little bit surprised about just how the proceedings really went on. I thought that generally it was quite strong and a lot of the questions were fairly well researched and the line of questioning was sort of what I expected, uh, especially from Anthony Housefather. I thought he was one of the, the more prepped MPs that were questioning. But I also was a little bit turned off by a lot of the fawning over the Olympic gold medalists and a lot of people seeming a little bit starstruck by the four Canadian national team players that were there. Um, I thought it would be a lot more sort of like a legal proceeding that was very sort of straight shot down the middle. Um, but it did seem like everybody there was already kind of on one side and it wasn't really an unbiased proceeding. So I haven't covered parliamentary hearings before, but that sort of stood out to me that it was it was seemingly one-sided. As far as takeaways, I think it was a lot of stuff that we kind of expected and a lot of things that we, we sort of knew, but it was good to hear that in that setting. And so they, the standing committee can make those recommendations and write, write that report, as well as the, the question that was, would they like Victor Montagliani to go? And very promptly by Christine Sinclair saying, yes, uh, he, they, she, she wants Montagliani to go there. So I think it was useful. I think it definitely brought the issue to a lot more of the Canadian public as well. Yes. Um, and I think it also, with that first comment about the, the, the bitching comment from Christine Sinclair, I think that really caught like the world's attention as well. And so I think it was positive, and I think we'll learn more when Canada Soccer goes there and Nick Bontis goes there. But it's nothing that we didn't expect, I don't know. No, exactly. I think the only one thing that's, I guess, I guess the positive of that, because I do agree, one, that just having listened to the hearing, again, it's something where 
I'll plead ignorance since I haven't listened to one of those before. I mean, I've listened to parliamentary sessions, I've listened to, to Senate, but I've never listened to a committee hearing, so it's obviously something I was unfamiliar with, so I'll recognize that right away, but I do find it, yeah, interesting considering it's an investigation of some sorts, I guess. You do expect that aspect of impartiality and the fact that it wasn't there. You know, it was a bit like, you know, threw me off certainly to hear hear that. But I guess the one thing you'll hope on the flip side is that at least it remove maybe it'll remove some of the barriers, especially in terms of questioning with like a Victor Montagliani. Like if, you know, if this means that the, some of the MPs end up taking off the break, so to speak, with questioning there and, you know, some of the other questioning, that's hopefully a positive that would come out of it. But because, yes, it certainly was a bit weird to see it so one sided. And I think it's something where if you, you're having, you know, something of this sorts, it's not something you would uh, expect. And it was also interesting to see this proposed CBA from Canada Soccer because it's the first time that we've seen really everything laid out in that way um, from at least one side of, of the situation. And so the terms from Canada Soccer included equal pay, dollar for dollar on both teams, 3.5k per game per player, plus win bonuses of up to 5.5k based on opponent rank, 1.15 million goes to each team for World Cup qualification, 40% of the men's World Cup funds, roughly 3.6 million US dollars, and up to 75% of the women's World Cup funds, an estimated 1 to 4 million US dollars split equally. This was the original proposal from last June during the debacle part one. Yeah, and that deal on the surface, when you look at each individual category in that CBA, they're either market rate or a slightly above market rate for what the other like top 30, 40 nations, top 50 if you want to go that far, because Canada's currently on the precipice of that. That's typically what they'll pay, at least their men's players. The women's players, they would be getting more than most outside of, say, the U.S., but the U.S. obviously has much greater resources. I think it's anywhere from 3000 to $6,000 for a playing bonus, and then the win bonuses are just adjusted based on however you want to do it. $1.15 million going to each team for World Cup qualification. Even if you give that to every single player who participated in that World Cup qualifying campaign, so let's say 30 for each team, that's still about 38 to 40 k per player for the men and the women dollar for dollar, which is quite solid for most of those players. Uh, 40% of the men's World Cup funds combined with 75% of the women's. Let's say it ends up being about $4 million from the women's side is 3.6 approximately for the men. 7.6 million divided by 60, once again, is roughly a hundred something thousand dollars per player, which I think it's 130 something, if my math is correct. So all in all, those terms are quite solid from an unbiased perspective. But as we know, this is not the major crux of the issue anymore for the players. It's about just overall transparency. It's about where are all these revenue streams going? How come if we just take those terms overall, that is a very fair offer. We'll see if they accept it. But based on what you see from outside, most of the time, it's like 20 to 30%, I think, for the players out of the FIFA windfalls for, for the prize money. So the fact that they're going to be getting what is essentially like what an average of 55 to 60% of FIFA World Cup prize money, it's pretty solid overall. Yeah, I'd have to imagine this ends up being very similar framework for a final deal in terms of the financials. Mm. Uh, I just, th yeah, I think it's something where, I, you know, as as we saw in the U.S., I think until FIFA finally changes some of its prize structure, which again it remains very yes. skewed towards you know the men versus the women. I think 
federations are going to have to to make up for FIFA's you know skewed numbers in in, in, in on that regard. So it, it does make you know it, I think these sorts of frameworks of money where that that uh, the pool of money ends up being evened out uh, over you know over the course of, uh, of of how that happens basically. I think that makes a lot of sense in terms of that framework, and yeah, maybe the the percentages get adjusted. But I think that's something that we're uh, we're likely going to see. I think it's good to have a first step in the transparency in these negotiations. But tennis soccer did also say that they weren't going to be negotiating in public and negotiating by statement, and that's exactly yeah. what they have done yeah. and what they continue to do. Um, and that is also under now a, a new acting president in Charmaine Crook. So that part is interesting, and the the players said that they don't totally believe that. Charmaine Crooks is on their side. She, they said that was that also her first act as acting president. Was it not? Was releasing that statement as well? Yeah, that was her, her first act. She didn't reach out to any of the players when she became president of Canada Soccer as well, as mentioned or alleged by the the players. But it is a first step, and Canada Soccer also revealed some expenditure on both teams from 2012 to 2019. Total staffing and program spend on all men's teams was 37.4 million compared to 37.07 million on all women's teams over the same period. Now, that's a wide period as well, and a yes. period where the women had tremendous success, and the men, and the men were... zero. <laughs> bottom of CONCACAF World Cup qualifying kind of thing. Like, it was yeah. it was brutal for the men, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think that's necessarily a fair comparison. Definitely not. And, look, I understand 2020 was heavily impacted by COVID. That's fair enough. 2021 is in the financial report. Why would they not put that in there? That's what kind of got me is, and that's what I mean by when I talked about earlier, kind of cherry picking the numbers. Like why, look, if you want to explain the rationale for only using that period, like, oh, that was our, you know, largest period. That's when the women had most of the success and look at the even expenditure between both teams. Okay, fine. But then why not include 2021 when the men had all those games, the women had the Olympic run, they got the own the podium money, what about that? It's all well and good to throw the numbers out there, but we need a little bit more detail. We need a little more context behind those numbers. Because even if you look now at, at one of the other things they list there, from 2012 to 2019, total player compensation from the Federation for the men was $2.92 million, and then it was $2.96 million for the women. All right, fair enough. But again, why not mention 2021? Why not mention 2020 even? Because it's things like that kind of, that kind of make me wonder... Why did they use those numbers specifically and those dates specifically? Yeah, and I think you also can consider, like, uh, if you look at per game rates, those aren't also very, like, that, that skews things because typically the men end up playing more games in a year due to the, the FIFA calendar and the tournaments and how qualifying is shortened significantly for the women, which, you know, is unfortunate and should be changed. So that was also another number that you could, was, you know, particularly skewed, and especially when you look at, 2021 and in 2022 the, the, that equal amount of games then also helps reveal the disparity of the numbers which yep. you know it's it's also worth noting and Canada soccer business is voluntarily and proactively in discussion with Canada soccer to amend its representation agreement with the goal of providing in- incremental funding to the association to support its important mission of growing the game at all levels and I think that's an important part of that Canada Soccer release is that there's process on amending that. The issue then is where does the CPL really stand? Um, Because we all know that this agreement is effectively keeping the CPL alive. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's important to have a a league. It's also important to have a women's league in the country. Um, But there is there a middle ground 
um, because you can certainly throw out the deal. Both sides could agree to that, but where does that leave what the CPL has built? And the CPL has built something. Sure, it's a losing money business, but it's still a domestic league and something that Canada's not really had. Sure, there was the CSL, but the CPL is a very different setup. Um, but a question from Shane Kelly, at Shane underscore K Kelly. Any indication what the CSB is willing to compromise stating that they were willing to reopen the agreement with the CSA? Obviously money, but is term or funding of various, of various teams directly on the table? What really got me about the wording of that is, yet again, it's another vague statement from a CSB perspective. You know, Scott Mitchell coming out and tweeting, oh, we've invested over $100 million in Canadian soccer. Yeah, okay, but on what specifically? Is it just in the CPL? Is it also on Canada Soccer? Like, like, what is it really on? And it's the same thing here. Well, all right, if you're going to provide incremental funding, how much funding? What specifically is it going towards? Is it going to help, you know, maybe bridge the gap between the staffing costs or the resource costs for the men's and the women's teams? Like, what exactly is it going towards? So that's what... I'm, I'm really wondering here about this because yet again, they've kind of left us with a very vague statement yet again. Yeah, I mean, looking at the statement, I think the word incremental appears to be key because I mm-hmm. think it's something where, for I mean, certainly from Canada Soccer's perspective, maybe they would hope that uh, it's adjusted so that, you know, there's a certain maybe percentage attached to future years and, and, and like an amendment that allows a future percentage of revenue versus a future fixed flat fee. That's right, yeah. Because then that, you know, amends the problem that the players expressed in front of the committee that, you know, their problem with the deal was that it was basically tied to a flat fee that, yeah. you know, was a safe bet versus betting again, you know, betting or being ready for any sort of rise in the in commercial interest. So I think that would be something to answer Shane's. Uh, question I think based on the fact that they used incremental in the statement that would probably be something to expect in a future uh, amendment and of course that would make a lot of sense from Canada soccer and I'll be interested to see uh, what that would mean for CSB of course because um, you know like the, the the money they're receiving and where it's going so uh, would be interested to see where the common ground on such an incremental uh, improvement would end up being and finally, Canada Soccer is seeking nominations for president and vice president to be submitted by March 29. President will serve until the 2024 annual meeting of the members. VP will serve until the 2026 annual meeting of the members. Bylaws state that in order to be nominated, a candidate must have served at, at least one term on the Canada Soccer Board of Directors. And from just here for sports news, considering that FIFA does not typically like government involvement in federations, is Canada in danger of receiving some sort of consequences, whether it be exclusion of hosting the 2026 World Cup or otherwise? It's funny that they asked that because only a couple weeks ago, I think it was, Zimbabwe and Kenya's federations got suspended from all footballing activities by FIFA because of government interference. And ironically, they were actually looking into the very same issues that the federal government here is looking into. Allegations to sexual assault, financial mismanagement, etc., etc. here. The big difference is, though, there is a Canadian running CONCACAF, and there's another Canadian still on the committee in Nick Bontis. And they are a co-host of the next World Cup. And as we've seen with FIFA, they tend to be pretty lenient with hosts and co-hosts and their behaviors. So I feel like they might be not immune to a some sort of reprimandation, but they'll probably get a slap on the wrist, if anything, just to kind of show like, hey, we have to do something here because if we did something for Zimbabwe and Kenya and other federations in the past, 
we have to at least do something. So maybe it's like a small fine or probation. I don't know. Who knows what it is? But those suspensions can be appealed or lifted if you meet certain requirements from FIFA. So maybe even if they do, they can always just appeal it and kick the can down the road. Yeah, and I mean, I'm not sure how CONCACAF is going to react to it because I think, you know, CAF in the past has shown to be quite strict. There's been a few federations that have been hit with that, but then you see, compared to CONCACAF, you see what happened in Haiti recently in there. You know, disgraced president returning despite, like, you know, some of the some of these strong yeah. allegations against him, like terrible allegations of sexual assault, and he was still able to return. Uh, it does make me wonder if CONCACAF ends up being a little more lenient because there's also been past president of other nations getting away with uh, that sort of stuff. And from C Sport News at C Sport News CA, what role should Canada soccer play within domestic soccer scene going forward? Comparing the CSA with how other football associations are involved domestically? For the most part, when it comes to their involvement in the domestic game, the federations, this is Canada Soccer included, they're usually responsible with licensing and memberships. So if a club wants to apply for membership or a league wants to apply, they have to go through Canada Soccer first to kind of get the, essentially the seal of approval. Let's just call it that. That's their role, which is why I think the CSB agreement raised an eyebrow or two when it was announced because if you look at the sum and mls deal they had a similar agreement with us soccer and they were together for almost 20 years and that was a very controversial agreement right up until some and us soccer split up a couple of years ago so you know again that's why you always kind of look at it curiously whenever a marketing rights deal for a league and then a leagues or a country's federation excuse me end up partnering together in a marketing rights deal like that. And getting into our Canucks Abroad mailbag, a reminder that Northern Football Podcast is proudly partnered with Canucks Abroad. Find the full Canadian player pool and daily schedules for Canadians in action at canucks-abroad.ca. Alfonso Davies scored his third goal of the season as Bayern Munich beat Augsburg 5-3. He also went the full 90 in that one. Jonathan David scored a hat-trick for Lille against Lyon to become the club's all-time leading goal scorer. He's on 21 goals this season. E.K. Ubo made a third straight appearance for Troyes off the bench as they lost 2-0 to Lorient. Kyle Lahren recorded his fourth goal in seven games for Real Valladolid in a 1-1 draw with Elche in La Liga. Tejan Buchanan logged the full 90 on the right wing in Club Bruges' first game after Scott Parker's departure, winning 2-0 against Standard Liège. Stefan Estacchio played 79 minutes in Porto's victory over Estoril in the Premier Liga. They face Inter in the second leg of their Champions League round of 16 matchup on Tuesday. Steven Vittoria had the full 90 for Chavez as they shut out Portimorense 2-0 on Saturday. Ishmael Kone was an unused substitute in Watford's first match under new manager Chris Wilder as he set up his side in a 3-4-3 with a double pivot. And a question from Matt Ryerchuk at MPH Legend 10. Should we be concerned with the recent minutes for Kone at Watford, or is it too early to be concerned? He's been on the bench more recently, or is it just his current lack of form? So Watford do have two games before the international break, which are Tuesday and then Saturday. If Kona doesn't even come off the bench in either of those games, then we can probably start to launch an inquiry into what's going on. Curiously, though, Wilder did say after the game on the weekend that he wanted his team to be braver in the final third. And who better than Ismail Kone to fix that issue? So maybe he'll end up leaning on him on Tuesday, maybe even on the weekend. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, it's ultimately early days of the Chris Wilder era at Watford. Uh, long may it last, I guess, just in the sense that uh, coaches at Watford don't always last that long. They do not. But uh, jokes aside, I think it'll be interesting to see how he smelled Kone 
just integrates because yeah, always the early manager bounce. Will he decide to go for a group of favorites just to get a little regularity? Will he kind of get a different look at players? I think based on what we saw from Wilder's system, Kone is someone who could help a lot. It's just a matter of can he get integrated into that that system and hopefully you can see some minutes before heading off to Canada camp because Watford does have a very important end of the season. It would be nice to, to have Ismail Kone involved in that just given that he has such a, a big year, rest of the year ahead if he wants to go to Udinese or if Watford gets promoted, you want him to be in the best position to make an advantage of such a move should it occur. A week after scoring his first goal for Celtic, Alistair Johnston picked up an assist in the club's Scottish Cup win over Hearts. Ross County wasn't in action, but Victor Latouri was handed a provisional call-up by South Sudan for AFCON qualifiers, certainly something potentially worrying for the Canadian national team. And that's the question from Tommy Comb at TommyComb14. How worried should we be about Victor Latouri being named to South Sudan's provisional squad? Does this mean it's now or never for a hashtag Canavanti call-up? Put it this way. The likes of Jebison, Diash, Flores, Mitrovic, they've all received provisional call-ups at some point over the last couple of years. None of them have actually accepted a full-on call-up. And in the case of two of them, they ended up changing allegiances in between that. So it's possible that Loturi doesn't accept a call-up at all this window and just examines his options and sees what's best for him. Or he's maybe waiting for Canada and he's using this as leverage. I don't know. I'm sure they're looking into it given the midfield concerns for Canada. If he chooses South Sudan and Canada didn't make an attempt, if we come to find that out, I'd be very curious to know the reasoning because from the looks of it, he is a pretty perfect fit for a team that plays a double pivot and for a team that needs more depth at the six. Yeah, look, I think it's one where we can never know a player's true allegiances mm-hmm. in terms of national team. And like, look, there would make a lot of sense for him to represent South Sudan. His brother, Willie McKeel, plays for South Sudan. Would be a great story to have you know, a pair of brothers playing for the same national team. So I wouldn't fault that, but I think if you're Canada soccer, I mean, it would be pretty inexcusable to not be in contact with Victor Latouri. He's a number six right now in the Canada's number six depth. If you look, it's, uh, you know, an almost 40-year-old Atiba Hutchinson. He is yeah, there you go. 40-year-old Atiba Hutchinson. It's Samuel Piet, who's currently injured. Mm-hmm. It is Liam Fraser, who is not fighting, fighting for minutes <laughs> in the second Belgian division. And, like, I guess that's pretty much it. Like, I guess... Like maybe it's guys like Michael Baldissimo who's on the bench in San Jose. I like guess. Like who else? Like in terms of Ralph pure, Prizo, I guess. I guess Ralph Priest would be ahead of Baldissimo, but he's someone who's still finding his feet in MLS. And he didn't play over the weekend. Uh, whereas <clears throat> Victor Latouri has been playing a lot in Scotland, a league that Canada has called up many players from in the past. Uh, he's playing on a relegation battle team and still looking good despite. Regardless you know, of the opponent. Yeah, regardless yeah. of the opponent, he. he destroy and progress which hey hey you know i love that about number six but i think canada could use some he's 22 so it's not like you're looking at someone who's 26 27 you could be like okay maybe he's a bit old no he's like still very much young uh and now the added he's a dual national with other interest elsewhere it they can't at the very least has to call him so i think this is something where like peter mentions it could be very much leverage and i think maybe canada sees this and at least if I were in their position, I mean, I would have called him a while ago, but I think it's something where you have it now, mm-hmm. you, you you do, because, yeah, I think if at the very least you don't try and get Victor Latour, it'd be pretty inexcusable. I'd get maybe if he was a winger, and you're like, the winger depth is all right. This is one where this feels a genuine... Kind of like the Luca Coliosho situation. Exactly. This is more like yeah. a genuine area of need ahead yeah. of 2026 is, is number six is at center backs, and certainly they've done a lot of inroads with center backs, but a number six like Latour would be a huge get. Mm-hmm. 
And Sam Adekubi got his first competitive start for Galatasaray, going to full 90 for them in a 1-0 win over Kasimpasa on Saturday. There are also reports out of Turkey that Atiba Hutchinson is planning to retire after the Turkish season, and I don't think that's a surprise really to anybody. Nope. Liam, Liam Miller had about 8 minutes in Basel's 2-2 draw with Slovan Bratislava in Europa Conference League on Thursday. He was a late substitute again in the league draw with St. Galen. Theo Corbinu was a late substitute as well for Amina Bielefeld in their 3-1 win over Darmstadt. Milan Borjan got the start for Red Star Belgrade as they crushed Novi Pazar 5-1 on Sunday. Scott Kennedy saw the pitch for the first time since he was sent off for Jan Regensburg in January. He was a stoppage time sub in their 2-1 win. In MLS, Jacob Schaffenberg scored his second goal of the season and what a strike it was as Nashville beat a struggling CF Montreal 2-0. And from Felipe Vallejo at Felipe V underscore FC, Jacob Schaffelberg is having a fantastic start to the season, but are his Canamente opportunities going to be limited playing in the same position as Alfonso Davies? No, not necessarily, because the positive for him is there will be no Junior Hoyland in this window. Liam Miller isn't exactly lighting it up these days, so that could open up a spot as a potential backup winger or just an impact substitute off the bench. And he has some caps already, so he's already familiar with the setup, with John Herman, with the technical staff, the other players, etc., etc. He probably won't be a starter anyways, but as a reliable option off the bench who, as we've seen pretty much since he's gotten to Nashville, who can press aggressively, track back diligently, and put in some work defensively, which Herman really values out of his wingers, plus progress the ball and add a goal here and there, definitely a very good option to have, especially one who is clearly in very fine form and still 23 years old. Jacob Schaffelberg's come a long way since his, you know, in his time at TFC in 2021. You know, remember when he burst on the scene? He was just this kid known for his pace. And you look at his game now. I mean, we saw he had a crossing into his game for that period in 2021 where he could do no wrong for That's TFC, right. and that obviously hasn't gone away. But now I'm just impressed with the maturity of his game, like these runs that he makes, his finishing. Um, just he doesn't run around like a headless chicken anymore. No, he, like, he just he makes efficient his, runs. Like he's yeah. always open in a good way like Nashville plays a lot in transition and when I watch their games I'm just always impressed by how he's making these dangerous runs that either force a defender to step to him or the reality is Hany Mukhtar everyone <laughs> marks Hany Mukhtar yeah. in good reason and they try to double triple team Hany Mukhtar Schaffelberg stays open he keeps benefiting from thank you very much I'll take offers. that and shoot so it's one of those where like look if you have a depth player like Schaffelberg who's still young and he's grown a lot in his game, and his, you know, has shown he can elevate his game to play with players like Hany Mukhtar, uh, you know, and he showed at TFC as well by playing with some good players when he did get minutes. I think this is someone who would be very good in the national team setup, and what I like is what he brings to the table in, in terms of areas like work rate. I mean, his, his work rate is, you know, remarkable, the amount of running that he does in games. I think it's something where it makes a lot of sense. Uh, in terms of winger depth, he'd be a good piece to have off that bench because, you're looking at guys who could come in and bring a different look from what you're getting from guys like, you know, say whoever's starting in the, you know, at the wing for this camp's probably like Tejon Buchanan, you know, maybe it's Alfonso Davies given some of the injuries to the wing. I think a guy like Jacob Schaffelberg would bring uh, some good energy off the bench. Mo Farsi played the full 90 as the Columbus Crew settled for a 1-1 draw with Toronto FC on Saturday at BMO Field after a snowstorm. In Toronto, Kyle Hibbert scored his first MLS goal for St. Louis to help them beat Portland on the road, as well as Dane Sinclair started for Minnesota United in their 1-1 draw with the New York Red Bulls after the club had a week off. Luke Petrasso also received a start in Orlando City's Champions League clash with Teague Grays and looked quite good in doing so. Ralph Preso was an unused substitute for the Colorado Rapids in their 1-0 defeat to the San Jose Earthquakes. 
Lucas Cavallini had an assist for Tijuana as they lost 3-2 to Santos Laguna on Sunday. Dominic Sator went the full 90 for Corona Kielce as they edged Radomiak 2-1. Didi Nabzi logged around 63 minutes for Pau in their 2-0 loss to St. Etienne. To the women abroad, Jesse Fleming and Kadisha Buchanan both went the full 90 in Chelsea's 3-1 win over Brighton, and they both started Sunday's win over Man United. Sabrina D'Angelo was back on the bench for Arsenal as well, which is fantastic to see after her injury against Japan in the last international window. Vanessa Gilles went the full 90 as Lyon beat Fleury 2-1 to stay atop the table. Mary Levasseur went the full 90 for Fleury as well. Ashley Lawrence had the start for PSG, playing the full 90 in a 4-0 win over Rems. In the Swedish Cup, Evelyn Vien scored again for Christian Stott, dismantled Ailing Sash 6-2. Carly Wickenheiser also started for Christian Stott. Clarissa Larissi had the start for Haken, playing 56 minutes in a 3-1 win over Vitois. Sarah Stratagakis went 89 minutes for Vitois with Suryeka coming off the bench. Chandra Davidson played the full 90 for Sportingen, 3-0 win against Amora. She also assisted on Sporting's second goal. Samantha Chang started for Toriense, playing alongside Lysiane Pru in goal as they lost 1-0 to Damiense. And don't forget to follow Canucks Abroad on Twitter at Canucks underscore abroad and on Instagram at Canucks Abroad for frequent updates on Canadian players worldwide and join the Canucks Soccer Chat on Discord and converse with other like-minded soccer fans at soccerchat.ca. And the question from Aaron at Canada Soccer 84 when is Canada Soccer releasing the Nations League roster? They play incredibly soon. Yes, 12 Peter, days. You Peter, guys are media now, so you guys could probably answer that more than I can. I'd put my money on Friday. Camp starts yeah, Sunday. And they're going to want to get it. The players arrive Monday, actually. Well, there you go. To, to Florida. But they probably will announce it Friday, right before the last games of the weekend. That's usually what they do anyway. It's interesting. They arrive a little late, I guess, by the Monday. Because usually they'd arrive well, on the, a Sunday. Yeah, I think the domestic players pretty much arrive that Sunday. And then some of the, I guess European, the European players they who place, take a little longer to travel. Like Atacubi, if he gets called Sunday, up, I guess, Or they play well. Sunday, yeah. It just about, everybody is there by Monday, though. Okay, so yeah, I'd say, yeah. I'd put my money on Friday. Canada, Canada soccer is... Uh, over the start of qualifying, it was random. It used to be Mondays and Wednesdays and Thursdays, but That's now right. it's Friday. I'd better Sometimes Saturday. Yeah, true. God, there's even a yeah. There was a Monday back there when they delayed their squad. The World Cup squad was announced on a Sunday, I believe. It was, was it Sunday at a.m. Yeah, there you go. But uh, Pacific, for, the, for for this one, I will go. For, I would say Friday at eleven to twelve Eastern is what I'd project. Mm, unless, and we'll obviously, if we hear anything, we'll tweet it out, of course. But. Uh, and from Borean's Pants, at Borean's Pants, do you think we'll see any of the staple call-ups of the last year or so dropped for Nations League? Besides Hoylet, who's ruled out with injury anyways, the only other name I could think of is maybe Sam Atakubi, but the fact that he's already gotten a star for Galatasaray, he played in a couple friendlies before that, he'll have enough match fitness, I think, to feature in both games for Canada. He's a pretty key player now, um, and I think that'll probably be enough for him to keep his place and start. Other than those two, I really can't see anyone being omitted there because there either isn't enough depth in certain positions or you end up messing with the chemistry too much if you do change a lot of players. And these are must-win games for Canada, as we now know. They have to top their group in Nations League to continue and maintain their top-four ranking in CONCACAF to get one of those quarterfinal places in next season's Champions League. I know this sounds... Sorry, next season's Nations League. I know this sounds very confusing, but that's CONCACAF for you. Uh, so these are must-win games, and they need their best players and most consistent players to be called up. So I don't think we'll see many changes other than injuries. And even with suspensions like um, Alistair Johnston and 
Raheem Edwards, as Alex pointed out a couple weeks ago, because he got sent off on the bench. <laughs> Other than those guys, and even Johnson will probably still get called up anyway, I can't see anybody missing out. Well, the Raheem Edwards one's interesting. I'll, I'll mention why in the next question, but in terms of this camp, I, I think the injuries have kind of forced John Herdman's hand, because we're not going to see Junior Hoylett. I don't think we're going to see Scott Kennedy, just given yeah, that he's, he's yeah. been struggling for a minute since his two injuries that he had, and then his red card. So, you know, I guess Scott Kennedy... Samuel Piet, I have no idea. That's right. Yep. Just because he's been dealing with injuries. James Pantemis, Max Crepo, obviously those two rule Possibly out. Possibly Waterman. Like, Joel Waterman, maybe he did play this weekend, so we'll, we'll see. And he has one more game. Yeah, this. so I think Waterman would. The other one's certainly up a lot more up in the air or out. Um, and I think because of that, that changes things a little. You know, also, I, I'd... I don't know. I don't know about Atiba Hutchinson for, for this window. Like, I think it's one maybe he gets called in, but I don't know how much he futures or... I think he's still going to start at least one game. You think he's going to start? He'll okay. probably start. He'll probably start. I could see him starting the game at home against Honduras because I think that's a surface that he'll at least know, and maybe he won't be risked for Curacao, or maybe he, they throw him into like the tough away game, kind of drag the young ones through it. Who knows? But I think he does end up starting at least one game. That's fair, but it is one where Tebow Hutchinson has played a handful of minutes since the World yeah. Cup, which we know he's also barely played since. So. I, again, but he does have 90 minutes in his legs, or maybe 60, 70, like 60 to 70 good minutes in his legs, regardless of how much he plays. As we kind of saw in that World Cup, right? Had a really good game against Japan, pretty good against Belgium, then after that he kind of just didn't have the legs anymore to play that consistently in that short of turnaround. Yeah, I mean, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see if he's included, because obviously a huge part of the long-term transition plan, or, or sorry, a huge part of the transition plan for this Canadian team, but... Uh, I guess given the injuries too and the depth in midfield, we will probably see him. But I guess also one to, to monitor uh, based on, I guess he'll kind of tip his hand to see how much we'll see him at a Gold Cup, for example. Like, I have a feeling maybe the Gold Cup could be his last dance for. Yeah, for that's Canada. when he might retire fully, completely. And then maybe maybe a home game in June, or, or I guess maybe even this window could be his technical home send off. Maybe they yeah. surprise us. And from Chris Talks Footy, who will be the shock inclusion in the Canamanti roster for the upcoming window? I'm going to throw it an exclusion as well, just to make this spicy, because I was really thinking about this. My first instinct for inclusion was Kyle Hebert, but the fact that we don't know what Waterman's status is going to be, Kennedy's as well, um, Daniel Henry isn't available either for this window, you would imagine, so therefore I feel like it's pretty logical that he'll get a call-up, because they just don't have many other feasible options at centre-back, so I feel like Hebert's not really much of a shock inclusion at this point I would say that my shock inclusion will be Matthew Chonier because he has been called up before he fills a need at the eight at wing back possibly as a six if you want to put him as part of a double pivot as a backup option basically be the straight up Piet replacement because you know he'll have familiarity there and I think that the shock exclusion, I really hope I'm wrong here. I really do, especially given the uncertainty in the midfield. I think Loturi's going to miss out. I don't know why. I just have this really gut feeling that we're not going to see one of these players that we really want to see, whether it's Farsi, whether it's um, Loturi, Heber, whoever it is. And I feel like Loturi's kind of the one that everybody really wants to get a look at. And so, therefore, that is what's driving the gut feeling with that one. But that's purely a guess. I hope I'm wrong. I think, personally, if I'm making the squad, I see Latouri, I see Hebert, I see Schaffelberg, 
But I feel like those names aren't surprising. We've heard a lot of. The one wild name I'm going to throw out there, and it could be worth a look for a multitude of reasons, Ryan Raposo for the Whitecaps. I think just because, and this is where I talk about Raheem Edwards, him being suspended for the Curacao game makes it like, you know, I just don't, I think because of that, maybe Edwards ends up sitting out this next camp. And Herman has shown that while he doesn't really play many backups at left back other than, you know, Davies at a Kugby, he's chose to slot Larea over, which I haven't always agreed with. But he has, despite that, always called up a Christian Gutierrez. He's always called up a Raheem Edwards. He does like that backup. And if you move Edwards out of that mix with the suspension, I look at guys who are playing. I mean, Luca Petrasso is also a shout there, given what he's shown for Orlando. But what you get with Ryan Raposo is he's able to play on both sides because he's right-footed, so it gives you a bit of a different look. That's true. forgot about that. He can also give you depth on the wings because he's played as a winger, as a wing-back. And plus, you know, he is a dual national, so it is something where you could look at potential interest from a country. Obviously, he's, he's, he's part Portuguese and Chinese. I mean, you're probably worried a bit more about China in this case than Portugal, but it is something where maybe something like that could also factor into a potential decision. At the very least, whoever gets called up and maybe doesn't see the pitch, you'll at least be heavily involved in training. Because if you're doing... 11 versus 11 scrimmages, you need a player in that position. Mm-hmm. So therefore, he'll be sparring against some of the starters, right? If, if Raposo gets called up, for example. And then you really see how he matches up against the top players in the player pool. So it's kind of a win-win situation where you get a look at the player, the player gets rewarded, and then you see really how they react in those pressure situations. And then if they react well, they usually end up getting some, some minutes from there. Because as we have seen, no matter the team really, training can be very important in that regard. I like the Raposo show, just given what he's done for the Whitecaps recently and sort of taking over that left-back spot in a bit of a deeper role than he's shown in the past, especially like he had a year last year, especially in the Canadian Championship, but then sliding back and really showing that he can control that left-back spot in the Christmas tree formation that Vandy Sartini has going in Vancouver. It hasn't necessarily translated into results, but I do think that isolated, Raposo has been a positive for the Whitecaps. But a question from Mark Carveo. With Atiba retiring and Borean following suit in the next few years, Canada's next captain is probably going to be Davies, but it's a lot to ask of him since he's already the face and the best player on the men's team. Plus, he can be shy around the media. So if not him, then whom? A lot of people were throwing on Alistair Johnston, which I guess makes sense. But look, I'm not saying that this is the right way to do it, but when you look at the nations who very clearly have an undisputed like best player or world-class player, they're usually the captain. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I know that he was the captain before, the, but Sadio Mane was the captain for Senegal before he got hurt. Then Kalidou Koulibaly, who's just as experienced, just as much quality, he ends up taking the armband, right? Well, he can, um, he still has the armband. And he still has the armband, yeah. He's had it for a while now. But, so, so there's one example. Gareth Bale for Wales. Robert Lewandowski for Poland. I know that this is a really extreme example here, but Cristiano Ronaldo, Portugal, Lino Messi, Argentina. We can debate all those players' leadership qualities, but typically those players who play at the highest level, they know what it takes, and I hate using this cliche, but they know what it takes to win, and they and they are used to those high-pressure, high-performance environments, and they are usually part of the leadership group in that regard. And you've seen all the players who've been very complimentary of Davies as a guy in the room. So, like, just because he might be shy, which he definitely is, doesn't mean that he shouldn't be captain and or it might be too much for him. In fact, I think he would actually embrace that, knowing the the kind of guy and player he is. Does the penalty play into this? The fact that he's the guy who knows how to win, per se, but wasn't able to score in that big moment? 
<laughs> that's probably a question you would have to ask the players, I guess. But that was the... I guess you'd have to ask Jonathan David and Steven yeah, Vittoria how that's they true. about that's that. That's true. But... I don't think it would. I, I know that there were some reports out there that there was maybe friction after that, but I feel like that might have just been heat of the moment. Like, hey, I wanted to be the one to potentially score the first goal in men's national team history in a World Cup. Who knows? I, I don't think it's going to be that much of a factor because, as we've seen, it's a brotherhood, right? So, yeah, I mean, it's a good point. I, it, I, you know, I guess it it really depends because then you also um, you look at other countries. Usually, it is that old head. Even like again, like. It, you, there is a certain age, like in France, for example, Kylian Mbappe hasn't taken over that armband. Ugo it's it's been Hugo Lloris. I mean, I guess we'll see now, but I bet you it's going to be Antoine Griezmann based on yeah. how the hierarchy is in France. Or so the it, real Karim Benzema. <laughs> but, and then, hey, if we're talking about the best player, what about Christian Pulisic over in the U.S. since yeah. Tyler Adams end up uh, taking the armband? But One I'm, of their actual best players yes. in the United States, yeah. Anyways, enough about spicy U.S. takes. Uh, but LeBron James is soccer, baby. <laughs> in terms of Canada, I think it's one where I don't think Davies being a captain is a bad thing. Like Peter mentioned, I think it's something where ultimately, especially in soccer specifically versus like a hockey where captaincy is a huge deal. Massive deal, yeah. There's something where soccer, it's more of a leadership group thing. It's more yeah. of like, a, you know, there's a lot of silent leaders on teams and it's just the way it's structured. Like it's such a more... Yeah, it's hard to explain the leadership soccer uh, structure in soccer, but like... Look at Daniil Henry, for example, right? Like, look at his importance to the room and why he ended up coming to the the World Cup and kind of acting as a pseudo-coach because he was that important to the room, to that important to the leadership group. And it's something where it's like, I haven't played anywhere close to a professional level, but even just growing up and playing, like, you usually... There is just a couple leaders on a team, and you know it. It's just like... It, it, again, I also played hockey to a pretty decent level growing up. And there is something where there is the guy stepping up, there is the player stepping up. So I think it is different soccer and Davies could be the captain. But if not, if say he doesn't want that responsibility, which is also sometimes, Very possible, sometimes yeah. I think there are some good candidates. I think Johnson, of course, is a leading one given his voice and what he brings on and off the field, especially off the field, just being that, that leader would go a long way because he's so well-spoken. If not another guy, throw maybe base. Especially we've seen that his leadership quietly emerge a lot lately. Sam Adekugbe, especially seeing how just you know how Jonathan Osorio for the next couple of years possibly as well. But I think Adekugbe, given like the the dignity he's shown and whatnot within the Turkish situation, Mm -hmm. and just how well spoken Adekugbe is, he's also a bit of a dark horse if you're looking at guys who you know are going to play a big role for the national team for for a while, but maybe aren't Davies. And the inter- there's, if you want, some interesting names. Mark and the others had a bit of an interesting argument. I saw some names like Jonathan David thrown out by Mark, which could be an interesting one if you want one of those silent lead-by-example types, which, hey, has a also captain. Also bilingual. As well, which helps for referees and whatnot. And from Vince Alvarado, at Vince by Demand, would love to know who was a player perhaps years ago you were so sure on or so hoping that they would succeed who ultimately didn't. And I do want to shout out Mitch Tierney here because... I think it was 2017 that Mitch wrote an article on Waking the Red saying you should keep an eye out for this guy named Jonathan David. And that is certainly someone who doesn't fit that description, but as somebody who was so sure of Jonathan David back then, you definitely have to give him a shout out in terms of seeing him that early. That was the year he played for the under-17s, I think. That absolutely dreadful under-17 side who lost to Cuba and I'm pretty sure finished near the bottom of their group and they were coached by Paul Stalteri at that time. And I remember watching Jonathan David and thinking this kid is clearly way too good for this age group. And then the next year he went to the Toulon tournament under John Herman and Mauro Biello. Looked really good there. 
Ghent picked him up, and then, as we know, the rest is history. So, yeah, that's actually quite a remarkable rise. It's only been about five or six years since then. But in terms of a player, actually, I'll go with two players here who I was really, really high on, and they just didn't pan out. And I honestly wonder if maybe they were, like, in that 18 to 22 range now, if maybe the careers would pan out differently. First one, immediately, Handsome Bokai. Um, when he was in Edmonton, he was an absolute stud. Then he left the club and then didn't really pan out. And then there were certain things you heard about him <clears throat> not necessarily being difficult to deal with, but maybe just someone who you really had to try very, very hard for everything to, for him to just buy in. And that was part of the issue. And then Kevin Aleman is another name as well, who kind of bounced around Costa Rica, bounced around the USL. He went to Spain in his youth and he looked like he was going to be absolutely amazing, but he never really panned out. Um, would have been very interesting to know if those two had come through now, if maybe their careers would have panned out differently. For me, it's Kian's froze, considering what he showed initially with the Whitecaps, and he's still playing at a decent level in Germany, but he never panned out into the guy that I thought he might be, and he's not at MLS level anymore. Um, but he had a lot of playing time with the Whitecaps when he was younger. He came through that academy, and I thought highly of him at the time. Um, of course, he hasn't reached those heights. I don't really have any necessary insight on where he's at now but he never reached those heights that I kind of expected as a as a young soccer watcher at the time of Keon's Froze and the Whitecaps. Well, Keon's Froze, Froze, Marco Bustos, Bryce Alderson. Bryce remember, Alderson. remember that era? I mean, to, to be fair with like a guy like Keon's Froze he did end up going to Germany and had that decent little like he had, some he had a cup run in Germany. He had some good third. Like, he also got paid decently well in the second and third divisions too so financially he'll be doing alright. Probably better than MLS to be honest. Does Marco Carducci count? I mean, he, I, certainly based on what we saw in that TFC matchup in the Canadian Championship all those years ago, we all thought, oh, this kid's going to be like, you yeah. know, Gaga Slonina, you know, from five, six years ago. Like, that's probably what everybody was thinking at the time. I mean, he can still very much pan out. He's young for a goalkeeper. He's 26, so he can still end up hitting some of his potential, but maybe from what we saw, yeah, he, he could probably qualify. Never forget that matchup, E.C. Nakajima Farron against Marco Carducci oh in the Canadian yeah. Championship on an empty Wednesday night at BC Place. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can go back to any of the Whitecaps players from that era, really, like Caleb Clark. Oh my god. UBC now UBC UBC varsity legend. FC. No longer Varsity ba- FC. Ba- yeah. Formerly Natswat FC Bagsman back last year, I guess you could say. So the Whitecaps, I, that's the one where I'm like, uh, a lot of these players, I find... A lot of them are in the age of 16 to 22, so I'm like, the, I'm struggling with Vince's question just because it's like a lot of them I haven't written off completely yet. Right. But I, mean, I guess some names to throw out there, I'm like, okay, certainly at this point I maybe would have seen a little farther. Is like I'm just again a guy like Michael Baldissimo, just because someone I I was talking about with someone today, and given how like in his first few games for the Whitecaps, like his technical ability transformed was, the side whenever he came in, and his technical ability was genuinely like one of the top on the team and the fact that he's showing that as a homegrown I just again that comes down partially to the white caps it feels like but it just feels like for, for a player of his technical abilities like it, you know I'm surprised maybe he didn't end up going to Europe or, or something like that so I throw a name like a Michael Baldissimo maybe if not an Alessandro Busti obviously I helped for him because his name was Juventus oh so he God, maybe yeah. got drawn into that but he genuinely looked good in those few Canada U20 and Canada men's national team games he played so I thought a guy like an Alessandro Busti I don't know I just thought he'd be end up more than Siri D right now still very young goalkeeper you never know maybe he ends up in the CPL which I'd say wouldn't be a bad idea for him to try similar to some other 
players who've been in lower level European leagues who've come to CPL and, and, and found their game. Um, and yeah, I think I'd say mostly guys in, in that age range. So it's hard to write them off because as we saw, like you can have a. I was going to include Balut Tabla almost on this list, but I remembered like actually he came to Ottawa and really resurrected his career and he's back in the Turkish second division. But certainly I guess Balut Tabla is one just because for him, he, we thought next Alfonso Davies. So the fact that he's not even close to that is again, and both both in the, how good a Davies has been and also how things have gone for Tablo the last few years. I mean, if you want to go even back further, there's another Davies that comes to mind that showed a lot of promise when he was younger, and that's Philippe Davies. He had a cup of tea with the Canadian national team and played with the Whitecaps in the, before they joined MLS, but he never really reached the heights that some people thought he might when he was coming out of the Whitecaps Academy uh, in the early 2000s. But I don't want to go down too much of a rabbit hole in terms of what could have been this Canadian soccer. We, we could have do this for hours. I mean, I was going through the the Whitecaps uh, Academy just because there's so many in that system. Well, yeah, they uh, opened the residency long, long, long before, you know, some of these other, I mean, even TFC, even though they opened their academy at around the same time, they didn't start producing players regularly until probably the early 2010s, whereas the Whitecaps were already starting to ch- churn out players, you know, as early as like 2008, 2009, as we, as Philly Davies, perfect example. Another Davies, of course, coming through the Whitecaps Academy, that being Alfonso Davies, and that went a little, uh, a little bit better than mm-hmm. Philippe Davies. But getting into our MLS and CPL updates, another winless week for the Canadian clubs, except for the Whitecaps. Vancouver crushed Real Espana 5-0 at home in the first leg of the CONCACAF Champions League round of 16. Second leg is this Wednesday. They also drew 1-1 with FC Dallas on Saturday at BC Place to get their first point of the MLS season. Toronto FC drew 1-1 again, this time with the Columbus Crew in their home opener at BMO Field, while CF Montreal lost 2-0 to Nashville SE to make it three losses in their first three matches to start the season. And from Coach Juan at 1CA Dom, out of all three Canadian MLS teams, which fan base should be the most concerned about their weak start to the season? I'm partially admitting defeat here. Alex is going to love this. I'm going to say Montreal because they can't bloody get the ball in the box, and it is so frustrating. I don't know whether this is because... Losada's instructing them to play so direct that they can't patiently build up around the box like they did last year and kind of find those openings and maybe take a few more chances to hit some balls into the box. And it is only three games, but just look at Romel Kyoto, for example. He was averaging, this is with penalties, of course, but 0.65 expected goals per 90 last year. It's about 0.23 so far this year. His shots are also way down. If you projected it over the course of an entire season, he's going to finish with far fewer shots at this rate. The passes into the box for the team and overall touches in the box are way down as well. Again, projected over the course of a 34-game season. That is going to end up looking drastically different from 2022. And they have the players to be able to fix this problem. That's the thing. Like Sean Rea, Matthew Chaunier, Aaron Herrera... Lassie Lapalainen, they just need to take those chances and just stop having tunnel vision with their shooting, with, with their dribbling, and, and try to pick out their teammates a bit more. And then maybe if they see one of their forwards at the edge of the box or in the box, try to whip it across to them or hit a cut back to them. You never know what can happen. Things like that are, are really hurting them. Because even in that Nashville game, yeah, they lost 2-0, but up until the 60th minute, they kept it close in terms of the quality chances for both sides. But obviously... If you don't take chances in the opposition box, chances are you're probably not going to win. And that's not exactly rocket science, is it? Yeah, I think Montreal, there's a few things concerning me that I'm curious to see what they react to. I think mainly the big one is midfield. It just feels like there's so there's something imbalanced about the way Montreal's playing. And you see it on the goals. 
that Nashville scored, you know, obviously the first one being in transition, and you just look at how it just feels like they're so, you know, I think this also ties, I guess, back to the lack of goals. It feels like they're so imbalanced right now, and they're trying to push a little higher just to get those goals, and they're wondering, like, three games without a goal, when's that goal going to come? And, you know, they don't have that same midfield balance where last year they were playing very aggressive, but they had such a good balance where they wouldn't get beat in transition despite playing so aggressively, and now that vulnerability is there and that's where they maybe you know a guy like Victor Wanyama I think has been asked to do a little too much given his role like he's someone where when he's you ask him to sit in front of a back four back three he will be an anchor like in a good way but it's one where he's being asked to run up the field and help orchestrate and then have to sprint in transition which we know his legs aren't the same that they used to be five years ago saying I think that's been a big issue defensively and I think offensively <laughs> they need to get that midfield balance right, and I, I think they need to find a way to get Romel Kyoto more involved. I think that's going to be one where he's he's dangerous when you can get him these sorts of like the Romel Kyoto. He's so good in like these little. They're not even like half spaces. They're like half like in front of the half space where he just like runs into the off the shoulder of defenders, and he's so good with both. Even feet. out wide too. Like he's yeah. also very dangerous out wide as well. And it just feels like Montreal hasn't been able to get him that service. Like he hasn't been getting those sort of looks that Romel Kyoto needs, and I think that's tough because he's the sort of player that they're going to need to get the the, the goals in so and again I feel like that leads back to balance because Montreal's just not progressing the ball past the midfield enough they're holding onto the ball they're pushing numbers forward but they're not breaking the lines and getting their you know tens on the ball as much and not getting the striker in Romo Kyoto and I think those are a few issues because look I think if you look at what's going on in Vancouver say where there's a big worry just one point and including two of those at home but there is a lot more tangible stuff going on offensively. Like Brian White is fourth in the league in XG4. He will eventually finish it. And those yes. are all non-penalties. Then they score a few goals. That goes out of the way. Yes, they cannot defend a cross to save their life. Oh my God. But there's some solutions there. You Even you look over at TFC, despite their, their injury to Lorenzo Insigne, they've gone out and got points in back-to-back weeks. Like They're defending a lot better after that first game. Like To only allow one goal in back-to-back weeks, Like they're looking better. I think it's one where... They can keep that up once they haven't seen it back in the lineup. Goals will come, but with Montreal, you're just looking like, is, is, is that midfield balance ever going to be there now with some of the departures? Are they going to have to genuinely make a new signing? Uh, those questions are starting to become more and more out there, especially given no goals through the first three games. That's that's rough given some of the players they have in their roster. And from Brookswood, Sean, at Rain City Fan FC 604 with three Canadian MLS teams off to a slow start, what are the realistic expectations for them in the remainder of the year? Are the results so far aberrations, or are they playing to their potential and up-and-down seasons should be expected? It's up-and-down seasons, I think, should be expected. Yeah. Teams are gelling at the start of the season. I did um, have maybe slightly higher hopes for the Whitecaps, but, I mean, the evidence is there that they'll probably end up coming good anyway because you watch them in the first 60, 70 minutes of games, and, like, my God, they play the absolute doors off of teams. Mm-hmm. And it is fun. To, they just can't get that killer second goal. You imagine that's going to come if they end up correcting some of the issues they have defending aerials, and this is where Alex and I had, had a very similar take because we were both looking at the aerial numbers for all their center backs last season and this season, and we both came up with the solution of a Blackman and Karifa Yao partnership because we saw Karifa Yao with Cavalry. He was a monster in the air. Tristan Blackman is about league average in aerial duels, and I highly doubt Vanny Sartini is going to want to go with Laborda, who himself had very good numbers in Uruguay in this situation. And Karifa Yao, two young center backs who are experiencing their first year in MLS. So he'll probably go with Blackman and one of those guys. But 
the Yao and Blackman partnership would probably make the most sense, just given their needs right now. Because, my God, they are only winning, I think it's like 23% of their aerial duels in their own penalty area. And Alex mentioned it too off the air. They're winning more aerial duels in the opposition box than in their own box, which never happens. Like, that's just how much of an aberration this is. So there's one thing that maybe could say, all right, the Whitecaps are probably looking decently good, at least for over the course of the rest of the season. TFC, Alex mentioned it there. Fully fit and, you know, everybody healthy. They're probably going to be like a five seed in the East at that point. Like, like they have enough quality to be able to win games like 3-1, 4-2, what have you, provided everybody is fit. Montreal, we already went over. I did have them as like a borderline playoff team. Last year, they also started the season very slowly. I don't think we ever saw them having the recovery they did last year. But I think that you're going to get a lot of lows and a lot of highs, almost similar to what TFC and Vancouver experienced themselves last season in that they were very average teams and they were flawed. So therefore, you are you can't get too low when the lows hit. You can't get too high when the highs hit either. I think, look, it's something where one thing is important to preface with all this MLS discussion Three MLS games means nothing, just because Montreal last year... Especially MLS. Montreal last year, three losses in their first Uh three games, and three losses, one draw in their first four. And they conceded a lot of goals. And they finished third in MLS. Not third in the conference, third in MLS. Yes. Uh, That just gives you an idea of it's far too early to write anyone off. What I think, what this tells us is we've seen, I think for the most part, these three teams have shown what about what we expect. I think if you're starting with Montreal... Look, we said it, like, they lost some key players. It was going to take some time to adjust to that, adjust to a new coach, adjust to youngsters. I think it's something where, at the very least, we know that guys like Sean Rea, Nathan Saliba, they've shown enough flashes that once they find really find their feet, they're going to be a problem. Rea's already shown it, especially in flashes, he's going to be a problem. I think they'll figure out how to get Romel Kyoto the ball. I think with them, it, there is the question of, okay, could they maybe use a DP spot on someone in the summer to just give them a bit of oomph? And I think that's a fair discussion to have. But I think Montreal so far, as we said, is going to be growing pains. TFC, again, it's when healthy. Their top-end talent is one of the best in MLS, so we can't, you know, that's not going away. But it's, okay, injuries, What's going to, what they're going to look like. And I think we've seen that with Lorenzo Insigne injured. So it's just keeping their guys healthy and continuing to shore up depth. Sounds like this week they're going to, you know, continue to shore up their depth. So that's obviously ongoing. And then with the Whitecaps, it's just them as putting it together because they've got the roster. And I think the fact that they went out and were so good against Real Espana was a glimpse of what that roster can look like when they're ticking, when they're going. And I think they just, they need a game like that in MLS play to really get their confidence going, it feels like, because... But they still lost four of six aerial duels in their own box to Real Espana, yep. which is quite a big issue. Yep. It just, it just feels like for them, they need their talent to come true. Because I think they've, again, they showed like... Karifa Yao. The, the old, the old Whitecaps team would have not won that game 5-0 against Real Espana. Yeah. Like, they didn't play all that great, I thought. They just were so much more ruthless in the second half. And yeah. they just need to find that gear in MLS play. And from Borean's Pants, after the first few games of the season, what do you guys see as each Canadian MLS team's biggest need to address... I don't think the Whitecaps really need to do too much because I think that they've pretty much shored up the depth in most areas of concern that they would have anyways. Montreal, Alex mentioned a midfielder, possibly a striker if the issues continue. But then if you are having issues getting the ball into the box or to that striker, will a new striker actually solve those issues? Probably not, whereas a new midfielder might. So 
That could be one area. And we know with TFC, it's a number six. Uh, we went over this a couple weeks ago, and I'm pretty sure last week as well. And the fact that Jonathan Osorio, as we found out now, occupies that third DP spot might make it a little bit difficult. But I'm sure that there are targets out there that they could get on a TAM deal who would do just as good of a job, if not better, than what they currently have. Hey, I mean, look, Andres Kubas for the Whitecaps is... At least last year when he came in, he was like a, a high TAM player. Mm-hmm. So maybe someone of that profile. Because I'd agree. For TFC, it's a number six. I think it's something where they just need that midfield balance. And I think they'll be more than all right. I think for Montreal, I'd say a DP number eight. And given that they have a couple slots, maybe, you know, maybe a DP 10. Um, but again, maybe you give the ticket to Sean Ray. If you have a DP number eight, giving Sean Ray the ball. And I'd say some maybe some wing back, maybe a left wing back. I don't know. I just yeah. think it's where Lassie Lapanainen's been more than fine there over the last year and a half. But it just they lost Bassong, which is one name. I know he didn't play a lot, but they, that's maybe one it feels option. like they could use, especially after since Matthias Schwanier's pretty much converted into a full time yeah. central player. Because they've got a lot of depth on the right between Aaron Herrera and Zachary Brogiar, et cetera. But I don't know, some left wing back. As for the Whitecaps. Yeah, the only thing I could say is maybe, I mean, I guess other than center backs can win aerial duels, which they do have within their ranks, like maybe some right back, like another right back. I just think uh, given the depth there, you're, you're looking now and the fact that Matthias Laborde and Tristan Blackman have constantly been playing there, even though they're considered center backs. And Javain Javi- Brown. Brown. Brown's been good, but fitness is always an issue with him. Maybe some right back depth would, would make sense. Actually, and some c- central midfield depth. I still think it's one where... Yeah, because you saw what happened with some of those subs like in the San Jose game, and you're like, ooh. Well, I think the big one is they have, between Russell Tybert and Sebastian Berhalter, no matter what you think of Tybert or Berhalter, I think they're more than adequate depth yeah. for Gressel and Shop, but there's no depth for Kubas in particular. Sure, and I think yeah. it's one where, obviously, he's been he's looked fit, and he's someone that you'd account to play a lot of minutes this year, but it's reality he's going to get suspended. He plays a style that's going to get him yellow cards. He also dealt with quad injuries last year. You would maybe like some six depth if you're Vancouver. And from Matthew Ryerchuk, is DeAndre Kerr profile better suited at striker or right midfield? I know it's early and based on limited minutes, but based on his attributes, what do you think? I think his pace, dribbling, and runs up the field make this an interesting thing to talk about. He did look better than what Adama Diomande and Ayo Akinola have provided. Akinola has been more of like a inside forward, really, from the wing. But regardless, Kerr looked a lot more engaged, looked a lot more lively. He was willing to make constant runs, which, look, being a striker sometimes is 90% runs where you're never going to receive the ball. It's just about opening space for your team and trying to lead a press from the front and, you know, lead that line of engagement. And Kerr was doing that pretty well. The fact that he scored helps for sure. And he does have the technique and the speed and the wherewithal to make those runs that he could probably work as a stopgap solution for now. I did like what I saw from him as an eight last year when he played there. So I think maybe long-term for now that could be his position. But as a makeshift striker, there's no reason why he can't at least give you a good 60 to 65 minute shift out there. Yeah, look, good strikers either stretch opposing lines with constant runs or they drop back and just constantly get the ball to feet and force defenders to track them. And right now, Adam Diomande hasn't been doing either. For TFC, he hasn't been stretching the back line. He hasn't been getting involved. And when he has his touch, has often let him down. So if Kerr's going to bring that, you know, stretch lines, I think 
it is something to consider just because TFC, you look at the profile of wingers, they don't really, funnily enough, other than maybe like a guy like Kerr, don't really have wingers that want to stretch the touchline and run at defenders. It's guys like Bernadeschi and Signe who, who kind of want to ghost in the middle and take advantage of space. And if a guy like Kerr is going to stretch back lines and open up space, it could make sense for them to fit the profile of Insigne and Bernadeschi more than, say, Adama Diamande, who, you know, is just looking like someone who wants to just contest balls in the air and be a little bit more of like a, I don't know, traditional number nine. So I don't know. I still think a guy like Kerr, I see him as a very solid winger, but look, for TFC, that's probably not going to happen a lot given the who's who he's up against. So, uh, and based on who the TFC has at striker, I would like to see this striker experiment continue because it's a position he could definitely do, uh, do some damage in. And also from Matt Ryerchuk, can we expect Ryan Raposo to have a big opportunity at left back for Vancouver since the apparent upcoming release of Christian Gutierrez and Martin's not starting? I mean, we mentioned earlier, Ryan Raposo, good things are been coming from this year, and I think uh, it's something where, yeah, I think we're going to see a lot of minutes for him. He's shown well at the left back position. We know he can go forward, brings a little bit of a different look going forward with his right footedness and his ability to have just a few different moves in his arsenal, loves to cut inside, loves to take it to the byline. He has work rate defensively, too, which has helped a lot. He might not you know, be a natural defensive stalwart at left back, but he brings a work rate, something that was maybe lacking with some of the guys, like a Luis Martins, for example. So, yeah, I'm expecting big things for a post, and he should lock down that left back spot and, uh, and get more minutes going forward. And from Jean-Sophie Pavé, Updates on Nobel Okello, Malcolm Johnson, and Jaquil Marshall-Rudy, please. Okello, from what I saw, this was about a week or so ago, he signed with the Revolution's MLS Next Pro team. So he stuck around there, which is good to see. Malcolm Johnson, he was brought into Vancouver. He's going to play for their MLS Next Pro team. Marshall-Rudy, I, I literally don't know. Because it's funny how Kerr's gotten some minutes to start the season, and Marshall-Rudy is still kind of awaiting his chance. So I guess stay tuned for him. In the CPL, Vancouver FC signed three more players, including international wingers Nikki Gimya, Minjay Kwok, plus English centre-back Ibrahim Bakare. And Daily Hive's Tyler Green is also reporting that Camilo Sanvezo, the former Whitecaps MLS Golden Boot winner, is a fan of Afshin Gotbi at Vancouver FC and could be enticed to play in the CPL, which would certainly be intriguing be to see him back on Canada's <laughs> West Coast after... Potting so many goals for the Whitecaps, and then... He still has some juice in his legs from Mexico, too. And an ugly exit from the Whitecaps, too. That'd be hilarious if they play in the Canadian Championship. Oh, my and God, he's yes. playing against give the Whitecaps. Please give me that narrative. I'd love that. He still has some juice in those legs, so... Valor FC added veteran CPL striker Anthony Novak to its roster. Forge made a huge splash, signing Canadian international manager card James. And York United signed former Forge defender Jonathan Grant to a one-year deal. And from Hammer of Sparks... Forge has added Canadian international at centre-back looking to regain his form. To replace maybe their only big missing piece, Daniel Kreutzen, they'll also have a fit in firing Jordan Hamilton, plus a lot of returning stars. Is anyone knocking Forge off their perch in the CPL in 2023? Probably not. (laughs) They're just so damn complete. Bobby Smyrniotis is the best coach in the league, really. I know he probably doesn't prove that with individual awards, but he doesn't need to. He has the titles to prove it. He has the constant turnover kind of to prove it as well like he's made a few pretty big changes to his squad over the years and what i find the the most impressive of all it seems like out of any position forge has really replaced center backs incredibly well right edgar retires rama comes in looks excellent then 
you have Mandrick or James coming in to replace Daniel Crutzen. So it kind of goes to show you that they seem to have their replacements lined up very, very well there. And for sure, they're going to be the favorites, rightfully so. They they have the most depth. They have the most experience. They are the most battle-tested team in the league. It's still going to be a very tight league fight this year, I, I believe. And it's not like that they're going to be like by far and away the favorites, but for sure you have to give them that favorite title just because they've had less roster overturn than some of the other clubs that would be looking to compete for the title. Peter, I'm surprised at the Dejan Yakovic. Oh, and Dejan Yakovic. Yeah, that's right. In, in terms of a, yeah, I forgot about him too. There's veteran, so many center backs. Maliko Walabi Balebu, my boy, also got signed there. <laughs> Love that signing. Well, I mean, if we're just talking veteran Canem and T center yes. backs, the fact that they've they can, seem to they like could those they guys. could they could roll out an all time eleven of. Jakovic in the middle of Edgar and uh, and Mandricard James. Like. Ashton Morgan on the left. Like, it's, yeah, it's crazy. But not. Bringing back 2015 Ken Yes, yeah, But exactly. it's still with juice in their legs. I think Forge is right now the team to beat. They're top of my power rankings. And, like, you have to give credit that despite winning, they've kept their roster. I mean, really, like, the only players they really lost over the last few years, I guess Kwame Awuwa, um, Obviously, David Edgar retired, but they replaced him. And, you know, they didn't really lose much. Daniel Crutzen now. Um, like, a lot of these guys are still around. David Chouanier, Tristan Borges. Uh, you know, Wubens Pasia sticking around. Uh, Taron Campbell's still around, if you're looking at depth. And you look at their team last year. I mean, Alexander Yachinyoti Janssen returned. Kyle Becker signed a contract. Their only glaring hole is, okay, what did they do with that Crutzen-sized hole? And they filled it with a guy like Mandricard James. They've still kept Tristan Henry around, Reser Rama, Ashton Morgan. Like that starting eleven is already going to be one of the toughest to beat in the league. And then the, that you just look at the depth again. I, I've thrown out all these names. I haven't even mentioned Jordan Hamilton. <laughs> guy like Noah Jensen has looked good in midfield uh, last year. I think Forge absolutely it, it, they are going to be a team to to beat just because they not only they have talent. Because I think one thing that we're going to see this year is a lot of these CPL teams have done a great job getting a lot of top-end talent. There's some really fascinating names to watch. But I think depth is going to be a huge issue. Uh, so it always is. You know, can champ and other competitions to play. Uh, and I think because of that, Forge is going to have a huge edge as they deal with the injuries and the travel that, that comes with playing a full CPL season. And from Chuck Dickens, at Chuck slash forward, who is going to be the CPL U21 slash newcomer of the year? There are a lot of new faces. Who is going to shake up this league? Does Magic Card James count as Newcomer of the Year? I mean, I, they don't have an exact award for it, but if we were to go for that, he'd probably be top of the list. Or for, sure. for under 21 names. One of the first names that comes to mind, I'm not sure if he'd actually end up being eligible because I'm not sure when he turns 21, if he is 21 already, but possibly Christian Campania, a full season of mm. him in yes. HFX's backline. I feel like he could be a really sneaky candidate to possibly win that award. Usually they end up giving that to attacking players, but you got to give some love to the defenders, especially for someone who I think took to the CPL really well, like Campania. So those would be some names off the top of my head. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly a, a good name to shout. I think another young player that I would throw out there was a Kwasi Poku for Ford, oh, yeah, especially yeah, after yeah, yeah. his time with yeah. in, with Hacken. It appears it's over so that he will be coming back. So I think the fact he's still only he just turned 20, that's obviously a, a, that's a name to watch. And I think Halifax is a great one, because I think a guy like Thiago Coimbra as well. I'm just fascinated to Thomas see Thomas Geraldo? Yeah, Thomas Geraldo is first uh, full season. Those are some names to, to certainly to watch over on the island. As for newcomers, I think I'll go two. I'm going to go with Donja Reed with 
Pacific, just again, he showed such good numbers in the USL, and he goes to a Pacific attack that, despite looting Busto, still has Aparicio, still has Josh Hurd, they have Easton Ongaro, like, they could have something brew in there, I didn't couldn't lay down a Luke, and a guy like Adonja Reed uh, could, could fit in nicely, given what he's shown the USL level, and I'm going to throw out another one as well, I'm going to go over to York, I think a guy like Clément Bahia, I think it'll be good for him to come mm. to the CPL after, um, you know, showing... I thought he showed some good flashes at Montreal back in his day and then went to Ham Cam. Wasn't always easy for him to mm. get minutes. Um, but I think it's someone you look at all these New York signings they've made and like, like the, the Yorks, the fact they brought in Elijah Adekubi and Jeremy Gagnon Lapare to shore up their midfield along with Matthew Baldissimo, that's going to be massive. As long as they can replace um, Dominic Zator going, which is going to be a question mark. But I'd love to see how a guy like uh, Clément Bayah fits uh, in, in that in that setup just because they've got so many exciting players. They kept Ozazi Di Rosario. Ronan Crack could come back through halfway of the year. They signed Brian Wright. You know, Austin Ricci's back. They've, of course, Moba Bully, who was playing like an MVP last year. They've got so many exciting pieces in the middle. So you think about a guy like Bahia could do maybe if he's played as a wingback or as a fullback uh, or as a winger. It could be exciting based on all that talent around him. League One Alberta officially unveiled an exhibition series that is expected to begin on May 12th. So certainly good to see League One growing, even if it's just an exhibition series for this year. Five teams will play in both the men's and women's leagues. Calgary Foothills, Edmonton Scottish, St. Albert Impact, and BTB Club will both field a team in both divisions. Cavalry FC will have a men's team, and the Calgary Blizzard will take part in the women's league. The exhibition series will be used as a litmus test to see the feasibility of a League One Alberta with plans to officially start the league in 2024. And from Matt Paternostra, with League One Canada growing, adding League One Alberta, is there a path being created for a Tier 2 league under the CPL? Could we see relegation and promotion through all the tiers at some point? I don't necessarily Ontario, want to see it. Is League One Ontario not introducing promotion and relegation themselves? So like they are, but I, I, don't want to see, I don't want to see that come up to the CPL. No, I, I might not. be in the minority of our podcast listeners, but I don't think that would actually be good because if you have not somebody right buying to CPL, yeah. like you don't want them playing in League 2 Ontario. No, exactly. Right? You, when you have a single entity league, it, it just isn't feasible as much as we might want to see them. It might be the dream for most hardcore fans in the country, but within League 1 Canada, there's no reason why they can't do it. If League 1 Ontario is going to do it starting next year, I'm sure the other leagues will follow suit once they get more and more teams involved in that system. So yeah, why not? I think pro, re- pro relegation is going to come to Canada. Uh, CPL has mentioned it in the past. And I think that's a good thing. I think as long as they build it gradually, I think they've said they want to get to like 16 teams first before they introduce it. And then from there, if you have a Div 1, Div 2 CPL, then maybe you could gradually introduce it so that League 1 teams are involved in that mix. But I guess it's something maybe not right away. You say you want to throw that all together and have that, but I think... They, sustainably long-term, there could be a way to build that ecosystem once you have more teams. And from David Anthony, at A underscore Miller 16, is there still intention for League One Alberta to become a League One Prairies eventually? I think having Manitoba and Saskatchewan go at it on their own wouldn't be competitive enough. Same without East, as League One Atlantic would be better than just a League One Nova Scotia. And I would say that's yes. still the plan. And that's what I've heard as well from yeah. people who are, who are involved. Yeah, exactly. And Alberta is the hotbed of soccer in the prairies anyway, so it makes sense to start with them. They have the most infrastructure there. And I'm sure that the likes of Saskatchewan, Manitoba, will want to see how, for example, Valor pans out, how the Saskatoon CPL Club will pan out, if it ends up becoming to fruition. So, yeah, I, I think that that's 
the eventual plan. Same with League One Atlantic. Like it, it would just make way more sense for the feasibility of, of those leagues to have that combined region. And for Matt Ryerchuk, any updates on possible Canadian cities or places interested in potential women's teams before the 2025 league or even in the long term? I did see that Project 8 was able to get a few more sponsors on board, which is encouraging to see. I, we still don't really know the exact agreements or terms in those deals yet, but the fact that there is at least early interest in the league is encouraging. Don't really know about the other city. I mean, we already saw Project 8 lay out potentially where they'd want to go, but there really hasn't been much of an update from what I've seen anyway since then. Yeah, I mean, Diana Matheson said she really wants to get into Quebec, and I think that's no secret. And she said, even if it means not being able to work with CF Montreal, so I'd say Quebec, certainly that one, it's going to make a lot of sense. I think that's one thing it would have been nice to the CPL to get the, some ground roads in on Quebec right from day one. And I think if the Women's League can avoid that mistake, that would be very smart to, to capitalize on what's going on with the sport in that province. And that's all we've got for episode 113 of the Northern Football Podcast. I've been Ben Steiner, he's been Alex Garnier-Ruzik, and he's been performance analyst for the Canadian men's national team, Peter Galindo. We don't know exactly what the future holds for the podcast going into the next few weeks into the international window. We'll keep you guys updated on our social, all the more reason to follow us on social as well. But we'll be sure to stay up to date with the Canadian men's and women's national teams and Canadian soccer, whether it's on this podcast or in other mediums in the future. Peter, of course, going to be high up in the sky or even on the touchline. Exciting times in Canadian soccer. It's been a pleasure hosting this podcast alongside you two. Uh, Hopefully this isn't the last one. I don't think it will be, but definitely coming to an end at some point in the future. I'll keep everybody posted. Listeners, you guys, obviously, with what happens over the next few weeks. I mean, it is a tremendous opportunity. I can't wait to get started, but uh, we'll obviously see what is in store for me with uh, the national team side of things. I've always wanted to do this sort of a role really for the last few years. So the fact that I'm going to be working for a team and then for that team to be my country is just an honor. So I can't wait to get started and hopefully it does lead to more, but I will be sad to leave you boys behind if it does end up leading to more opportunities. Hey, just enjoy your first call up to the big league, to the international stage. Yes, hopefully, sure. Victor Loturi follows. Yeah, with, just with his first call up to the. Just remember your league. first caps, and uh, just remember uh, give your shout out to your club team, NFP. We'll be sure to do that. Yeah.